The Atonement by Arthur W. Pink. And to start the book, we'll read first the Publishes Forward, Publishes Forward, The Death of Christ, the Incarnate Son of God, is the most remarkable event in all history. It is the subject of never-failing interest to all who study prayerfully the Holy Scriptures. This is so not only because the believers all, both for time and eternity, depends upon it, but also because of its transcendent uniqueness. The Atonement of Christ is the most important subject that can engage our minds. We do not believe a clearer, more lucid, helpful, and scriptural setting forth of this glorious theme can be found anywhere. We are confident this work will prove a great benefit and blessing to every serious and careful reader by the publishers. Chapter 1, The Atonement Introduction The death of Christ, the incarnate Son of God, is the most remarkable event in all history. Its uniqueness was demonstrated in various ways. Centuries before it occurred, it was foretold with an amazing fullness of detail by those men whom God raised up in the midst of Israel to direct their thoughts and expectations to a fuller and more glorious revelation of himself. The prophets of Jehovah described the promised Messiah not only as a person of high dignity and as one who should perform wondrous and blessed miracles, but also as one who should be despised and rejected of men and whose labors and sorrows should be terminated by a death of shame and violence. In addition, they affirmed that he should die not only under human sentence of execution, but that it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief, Isaiah 53.10. Yea, that Jehovah should cry, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts, smite the shepherd, Zechariah 13.7. The supernatural phenomena which attended Christ's death clearly distinguishes it from all other deaths. The obscuration of the sun at midday without any natural cause, the earthquake which clove asunder the rocks and laid open the graves, and the rending of the veil of the temple from top to bottom proclaimed that he who was hanging on the cross was no ordinary sufferer. So too that which followed the death of Christ is equally noteworthy. Three days after his body had been placed in Joseph's tomb and the sepulcher securely sealed, he, by his own power, John 2.19 and 10.18, burst asunder the bounds of death and rose in triumph from the grave and is now alive forevermore, holding the keys of death and Hades in his hands. Forty days later, after having appeared again and again in tangible form before his friends, he ascended to heaven from the midst of his disciples. Ten days after, he poured out the Holy Spirit, by which they were enabled to publish to men out of every nation in their respective languages the wonders of his death and resurrection. As another has said, the effect was not less surprising than the means employed to accomplish it. The attention of Jews and Gentiles was excited, multitudes were prevailed upon to acknowledge him as the Son of God, and the Messiah and the Church was formed which, notwithstanding, powerful opposition and cruel persecution subsists at the present hour. The death of Christ was the great subject on which the apostles were committed to preach, although it was known beforehand that it would be offensive to all classes of men, and they actually made it the chosen theme of their discourses. I determined, Paul said, not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified, 1 Corinthians 2.2. 2. In the New Testament, his death is represented as an event of great importance, as a fact on which Christianity rests, as the only ground of hope to the guilty, as the only source of peace and consolation, as of all motives the most powerful to excite us to mortify sin and devote ourselves to the service of God by Dr. John Dick. Not only was the death and resurrection of Christ a central theme of apostolic preaching and the principal subject of their writings, 
but it is remembered and celebrated in heaven. The theme of the songs of the redeemed in glory is the person and blood of the Savior. Saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Revelation 5.12 The atonement made by the Son of God is the beginning of the ransomed sinner's hope and will be the theme of his exaltation when he shall cast down his crown before the throne singing the song of Moses of the, and of the Lamb, James Haldean. Now it is evident from all these facts that there is something peculiar in the death of Christ, something which unmistakably separates it from all other deaths and therefore renders it worthy of our most diligent, prayerful, and reverent attention and study. It behooves us by all that is serious, solemn, and solitary to have just and right conceptions of it, by which is meant not merely that we should know when it happened and with what circumstances it was attended, but that we should most earnestly seek to ascertain what was the Savior's design in submitting to die upon the cross, why it was that Jehovah smote him, and exactly what has been accomplished thereby. But as we attempt to approach a subject so important, so wonderful, yet so unspeakably solemn, let us remember that it calls for a heart filled with awe as well as a sense of our unworthiness. To touch the very fringe of the holy things of God ought to inspire reverential fear, but to take up the innermost secrets of his covenant, to contemplate the eternal counsel of our blessed Trinity, to endeavor to enter into the meaning of that unique transaction at Calvary, which was veiled with darkness, calls for a special degree of grace, fear, and humility, of heavenly teaching, and the humble boldness of faith. Our prayer for hope is that he who is pleased to use ciphers, 1 Corinthians 1.28, to promote his glory, may condescend to grant us now a special measure of guidance of the Holy Spirit and deign to bless this book not to a few of those whom God has loved with an everlasting love. What has Christ done in order to secure the salvation of the sinners? What is the import of that death of his on which salvation hinges? In the quest, we may be fairly warned of what must be the consequences of submitting the question to human reason or of bringing the world's wisdom into iniquity. The preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God, 1 Corinthians 1.18, to which the apostle added, But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness, but unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. In view of these statements, it was an easy matter for bygone generations of the saints to anticipate what would be in evitable results when the wisdom of the world, which was fully arrayed against the gospel which Paul preached, should be constituted its interpreter or should presume to accommodate it to worldly principles. Sixty years ago, Mr. James Inglis wrote in The Waymarks of the Wilderness on the Atonement, said, There is one question which underlines all theological controversy, and as we approach the crisis, it is coming more and more to the surface. The question in it is, all really is whether God or man is to be the supreme, whether the glory of God or the supposed interest of man is the center around which all is to revolve, whether the will of God is to be supreme and unquestioned, or whether every expression of it is to be brought to the bar of human reason, and whether everything in theology, as in morals, is to be judged by its reasonableness and its apparent usefulness to man. Those who claim to be the most advanced theologians and moralists exalt human nature to the place of the sovereign arbitrator of truth and right and seek to apply their favorite maxim regarding earthly governments to the divine government also. That it exists only for the sake, as yet they would scarcely have the hardihood 
to say by the consent of the governed. This fundamental question of divine or human supremacy underlines the views men adopt of the inspiration and authority of the scripture. On one side, the question is simply, what is written? On the other side, a right is claimed to decide what ought to be written. The very presumption which Satan taught our first parents regarding what God had said. When this claim, right, is exercised, little of revelation is left unmodified. One of the first points on which proud reason comes into conflict with what is written is the natural condition of man. Nor need we be surprised if it should revolt against the divine estimate of fallen man and against the sentence under which he lies as by nature a child of wrath, dead in trespasses and sins, vile, polluted, helpless, and hopeless in himself. It is only the Spirit of God that can convince a man of sin in the scriptural sense, and so long as the appeal is to human reason, the scriptural view of man's condition must be rejected. Though it cannot be denied that the facts in the case, whether in the history of an individual or of mankind, most painfully corroborate the scriptural view, and though the most humbling descriptions of human depravity in the Word of God seem to be only history condensed, there is a wonderful faculty in offsetting these sad realities by an ideal excellence and in covering them up by glowing delineations of the possibilities of human progress. The power of self-deception and self-flattery in the human heart is amazing. The admirable sentiments which are elegantly expressed in the writings of men whose lives were very far from exemplifying them serve to cover up the deep and general depravity of the age in which they lived. Their modern admirers estimate themselves rather by their admiration of these virtuous sentiments than by what they know themselves to be in life and character. Never is this power of self-deception and self-flattery more signally illustrated than when it comes to the sphere of Christianity substituting the Sermon on the Mount for the disclosures of heathen moralists and reckoning all the graces of the renewed man, if not the living perfections of the Word made flesh among the possibilities of human cultivation. That man has fallen may not be denied, but we are taught that evil is incidental, not inherent, and may be traced to physical degeneracy, the influence of a disordered world, of bad example, and defective education. While undeveloped and dormant in the soil, there is an inherent nobility, the germ of all excellence, which only needs to be aroused and cherished until it expands into perfection, which renders it meet for inheritance of the saints in the light. Such views of natural condition of man lead to a corresponding modification of the scriptural doctrine of regeneration, which, according to our liberal theologians, is but the awakening of the dormant excellence of man, giving a new turn to misdirection, affections, and powers, and is the first step in the development of his inerrant nobility. The testimony of Scripture as to the inner, utter ruin of man and the necessity of being born again in the singularly emphatic terms used with reference to the one as well as the other might seem to present an inseparable objection to the self-exalting scheme but an evasion of the objection has already been proved for in a theory of inspiration which permits everything in the scriptures which is irreconcilable with their theology to be explained away as the exaggeration of enthusiasts or the daring imagery of Eastern poets. In such a system of doctrine, the missions of Christ can have no place except as it provides for this moral development or aids it. For first of all, in the daring exaltation of man the revealed character of God is tampered with. His perfections are rendered tributary to the supposed interest of his creatures. His righteousness, holiness, and truth are resolved unto benevolence, so that there are no claims of justice to be satisfied, no holiness and truth to be vindicated, 
and sin is only to be taken cognizance of insofar as it may interfere with the well-being of the creature. Humiliation, suffering, and death of the Son of God furnish but an impressive spectacle by which the evil effects of an unconditional pardon of sin might be averted and by which the heart of the sinner might be melted and conciliated. The life and death of Christ, in short, are the moral influences by which the dormant excellence of the soul is aroused, love to God and man engendered, and by which the wanderer is to be won into the path of virtue. The influence of the Holy Spirit, rather than his personal agency, now comes in to give effect to the truth and to aid to moral development. Just as in the natural world, the influence of the sun's rays changed the desolation of winter into the verdure of spring. When we remember that the atonement is the most important subject which can engage the minds of either man or angels, that it not only secures the eternal happiness of all God's elect, but also gives to the universe the fullest view of the perfections of the Creator, that in it are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, while by it are revealed the unsearchable riches of Christ, that through the very church which has been purchased thereby is being made known to principalities and powers and the heavenlies the manifold wisdom of God, Ephesians 3.10. Then of what supreme moment must it be to understand it aright? But how has fallen man to apprehend those these truths to which his depraved heart is so much opposed? All the forces of intellect is less than nothing when it attempts in all its own strength to comprehend the deep things of God. Since a man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven, John 3.27, much more is a special enlightenment by the Holy Spirit needed if he is to enter in at all into this highest mystery. Great is the mystery of godliness, 1 Timothy 3.16. Amazing beyond all finite conceptions is that transaction which was consummated at Golgotha. There we behold a prince of life dying. There we gaze upon the Lord of Calvary, made a spectacle of unutterable shame. There we see the Holy One of God made sin for his people. There we witness the author of all blessing made a curse for worms of the earth. It is the mystery of mysteries that he, who is none other than Emmanuel, should stoop so low as to join together the infinite majesties of deity with the lowest degree of abasement that was possible to descend into. He could not have gone lower and be God. Well did the Puritan Sibs say, God, to show his love to us, showed God himself in this, that he could be God and go so low as to die. Volume 5, page 327. To what source, then, can we appeal for light, for understanding, for an explanation and interpretation of the cross? Human reasoning is futile, speculation is profane, the opinions of men are worthless. Thus we are absolutely shut up to what God has been pleased to make known to us in his world. If it be true that we can know nothing about the origin of the old creation save what the Holy Scriptures reveal, the wild and conflicting guesses of science are falsely so-called, 1 Timothy 6.20, only serving to make this the more evident, then much more are we entirely dependent upon the teaching of the Holy Writ concerning the foundations on which the new creation rests. In his splendid work on the Atonement, 1867, Dr. A. A. Hodge rightly affirmed, I insist that, as the gospel is wholly a matter of divine revelation, the answer to the question, what did Christ do on earth in order to reconcile us to God, be sought exclusively in full and fair induction from all the scriptures that teach upon the subject. From a survey of all the matter revealed on the subject, what in the judgment of a mind unprejudiced by theories did the sacred writers intend us to believe? The results of such an examination, unmodified by philosophy or secular analogies, is alone we assist, insist the true redemptive work of Christ.
Well, did this deeply taught servant of God say, unmodified by secular analogies, the truth of God has been grossly perverted, the honor of Christ grievously sullied, and the people of God who are too lazy to diligently study the scriptures for themselves have often been misled by the superficial efforts of irreverent preachers who sought illustrations from the imaginary analogies and human relations. For example, the case of a criminal is cited in whose character there is no redeeming trait who is condemned to death for his aggravated crimes. When he stands upon the scaffold, the Queen of England is supposed to send her son and heir to die in the villain's stead that he may again be turned loose upon society. Yet this monstrous and revolting supposition was offered last century as an illustration of John 3.16 in the discourse of a popular preacher of wide reputation. The plan of redemption, office of our surety, and the satisfaction which he rendered to the claims of justice against us have no parallel in the relations of men to one another. We are carried above the sphere of the highest relations of created beings into the august councils of the eternal and independent God. Shall we bring our own line to measure them? We are in the presence of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one in perfection, will, and purpose. If the righteousness of the Father demands a sacrifice, the love of the Father provides it. But the love of the Son runs parallel with that of the Father, and not only in the general undertaking, but in every act of it, we see the Son's full and free consent. In the whole work, we see the love of the Father as clearly displayed as the love of the Son, and again we see the Son's love of righteousness and hatred of iniquity as clearly displayed as the Father's. In that work of which it were impossible to tell whether the manifestation of love or unrighteousness is most amazing. In setting out upon the undertaking, we hear the Son say with loving delight, Lo, I come to do thy will. As he contemplates its conclusion, we hear him say, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life that I might take it again. They are one in the glorious manifestation of common perfections and in the joy of all the blessed results. The Son is glorified by all that is of is for the glory of the Father, and while in the consummation of this plan, the wisdom of God, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit shall be displayed as it could not otherwise have been to the principalities and powers in heavenly places, ruined man will, in Christ, be exalted to heights of glory and bliss otherwise unattainable. But while no parallel to the great transaction of the atonement or to the relations of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit is as to its accomplishments can be found in any of the relations of mere creatures to one another, God has graciously adopted a series of types, historical and ceremonial, to the illumination of his great plan and especially to the illustration of the various aspects of the office and work of Christ. And these divine wisdom is signally displayed. By means of the typical system, God was educating men for the good things to come and preparing human language to be a fitting medium for the revelation of his grace in Christ. By introducing the Levitical system, God has shown us the sense in which such words in the New Testament as sacrifice, priesthood, propitiation, and redemption are to be understood. We cannot here give an exposition of these types. Our purpose in referring to them here simply being to call attention to the fact that they supply the needed key to unlock this New Testament mystery. That which is outstandingly prominent in the typical sacrifices of the Old Testament is First, that they were offered to God, having him as their object and end, instead of being pageants for making impressions on men. Second, that they are expiatory, atoning for sin, blotting out iniquities. Third, that just as the sin of the offerer were imputed to the victim, so the excellency of the victim was ascribed to the offerer. 
Fourth, that something more was affected by these offerings than an atonement being made for sins. A satisfaction was offered to God's holiness and justice. This leads us to call attention to the title for this book, and here we cannot do better than give below a digest from Dr. Hodges' able comments on this point. During the latter part of the 19th century, the word atonement became commonly employed to express that which Christ wrought for the salvation of his people. But before then, the term used since the days of Anselm 1274 and habitually employed by all the reformers was satisfaction. The older term is much to be preferred because, first because the word atonement is ambiguous. In the Old Testament, it is used for a Hebrew word which signifies to cover by making expiation. In the New Testament, it occurs but once, Romans 5.11, and there it is given the, as the rendering for a Greek word meaning reconciliation. But reconciliation is the effect of the sin expiating and God proportioning work of Christ. And on the other hand, the word satisfaction is not ambiguous. It always signifies the complete work which Christ did in order to secure the salvation of his people as that work stands related to the will and nature of God. Again, the word atonement is too limited in its signification for the purpose assigned to it. It does not express all that scripture declares Christ did in order to meet the complete demands of God's law. It properly signifies the expiation of sin and nothing more. It points to that which Christ rendered to the justice of God in vicariously bearing the penalty due the sins of his people, but it does not include that vicarious obedience which Christ rendered to the precepts of the law, which obedience is imputed to all of the elect. On the other hand, the term satisfaction naturally includes both of these. As the demand of the law upon sinful men are both perceptive and penal, the condition of life being this, do this and live, while the penalty denounced upon disobedience is the soul that sinneth it shall die. It follows that any work which shall fully satisfy the demands of the divine law on behalf of men must include, one, that obedience which the law demands as the condition of life, and two, that suffering which it demands as a penalty of sin. May the Lord graciously fit both writer and reader to contemplate and apprehend this wondrous theme in such a way that it much fruit may issue to his glory and praise. Chapter 2 The Atonement, Its Source In approaching this solemn and sacred mystery, we should do so with awe and reverence, remembering it is rather a subject of faith and adoration than of reasoning and arguing. A sanctuary open indeed to the meek and sorrowful, to the earnest and contrite, but always to be approached with solemnity and godly fear, a sapphire. It is written, The meek will he guide in judgment, and the meek will he teach his way. Psalms 25, 9. The meek are they who have no confidence in the flesh, who lean not unto their own understanding, whose dependence is in and upon God alone. The source of the atonement or satisfaction of Christ is God. This of necessity, for only God can produce that which satisfies himself. Men can no more provide that which will meet the requirements of God's holiness and justice against their sins than they can create a universe. None of them can by any means redeem his brother nor give a ransom for him, Psalms 49.7. A perfect law can only be kept by a perfect creature. One who has been rendered impotent by sin is without strength, Romans 5.6, to do anything that is good. Therefore, deliverance must come from within himself. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, 
condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. Romans 8, 3 and 4. In the beginning, God, Genesis 1, 1, such words at the commencement of the Holy Writ are worthy of their divine author. God is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end of everything. For of him and through him and to him are all things. Romans 11:36. Nothing can exist apart from God. In creation, in providence, and in redemption, God is the beginning. But for God, not a creature would have had being. But for God, not a creature could continue for a moment. For in him we live and move, have our being. But for God's direct permission, sin could not have entered the world. And but for his will in determining, his grace in providing, his power in securing, his spirit in applying, there had been no satisfaction made for the failed responsibilities of his people. Yes, God and God alone is the source of the great and glorious atonement. His will was the determining factor. His love the motive spring. His righteousness the incentive. His manifested glory the end. In humbly attempting to amplify the several members of the preceding sentence, we earnestly cry with one of old, That which I see not, teach thou me. Job 34:32. May it please the God of all grace to prepare the hearts of both writer and reader to contemplate the supernal glories of the divine character. Number one, the will of God. Of necessity, this must be the starting point when considering the ultimate source of anything, for God worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, Ephesians 1.11. It is nowhere said that he worketh all things according to the requirements of his holiness, though God does not and cannot do that which is unholy. There is no conflict between the divine will and the divine nature, yet it needs to be insisted upon that God is the law unto himself. God does what he does, not simply because uh, righteousness requires him so to act, but what God does is righteous simply because he does it. All the divine works issue from mere sovereignty. Creation could be nothing less but a sovereign act. To deny sovereignty here would be to deny sovereignty altogether. For if the created universe came into being and is what it is as a necessary consequence of the first cause, that first cause could not be a person, could not be endowed with freedom of will, could not be God. Besides, if the existence of this first cause necessitated the existence of the universe, it must have done so from all eternity. There could have been no beginning of the created universe. Redemption as well as creation must also be a purely sovereign determination of the divine will. This is required by necessities of the case as well as plainly declared in the scripture. No doctrine of redemption that in any way casts the slightest shadow over the high mountain of divine sovereignty will be tolerated for a moment. All theologies that in any manner teach or imply that there was any obligation upon God to do this or that for fallen, rebellious subjects of law are unscriptural, unreasonable, if not blasphemous. Divine sovereignty is not to be recognized as determined to save any fallen ones in determining who should be saved in choosing, raising up, and delivering up the Savior, and in the Savior's giving of himself. But this sovereign redemption, once determined, was wrought out under the law and in exact accordance with the law. Dr. J. Armour, Atonement and the Law, 1917. What follows may be deemed to Savior of metaphysics, 
yet do we feel it to be called for in view of modern slanderers of God. Even some who are regarded as quite orthodox have drawn a broad distinction, almost a gulf, between the nature of God and the will of God, failing to perceive that God's will is an essential part of his nature. Some have descended so low as to affirm there is in the very nature of things a standard of right which exists independently and apart from God, according to which he himself acts, must act. Such a conception is not only degrading but blasphemous. Others who have not adopted this insulting figment have nevertheless been injuriously infected by it and suppose that God's nature, as quite distinct from his will, is what determines his actions. There is nothing determined by the nature of God which is not determined by the will of God. When we affirm that God is holy, we do not mean that he makes right right by simply willing it, but that he wills it because it is right. There must be, therefore, some absolute standard of righteousness, is how a so-called Bible teacher has recently expressed himself. Even if it be said that the absolute standard of righteousness is the divine nature, if by this be meant God's nature as separate from his determining will, the expression is, to say the least, faulty and misleading. The will of God is an essential part of his nature, and therefore his will is the absolute standard of right. The will of God is not something related, dependent, and determined, but is sovereign, imperial, regnant. God himself is the ultimate and absolute standard of righteousness. Man is commanded to recognize a standard of righteousness outside of and beyond himself, and his will and conduct must conform thereto. That standard of righteousness is the revealed will of God. But shall we reason from this that God also recognizes a standard of righteousness to which his will must be conformed, a standard which makes right right and right being made right? He wills it because it is right? No, indeed. The truth is that we best discover what the nature of God requires him to do by noting what he, by his will, actually does. When God says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, Romans 9:15, he assuredly sets before us his will in its utmost freedom and sovereignty. But this supreme act of sovereign grace is the act of God himself, an act into which the whole nature of God, his will being included in that nature, moved him. We fail to trace anything to its original source unless we track it right back to the sovereign will of God. This is true alike of creation, of providence, and of redemption. God was not obliged to have created this world. He did so simply because it so pleased him, Revelation 4.10. Having created it, when Adam fell, he could have well left the whole race to perish in its sins and would have done so unless his sovereign will had previously determined otherwise. Justice did not require him to intervene in mercy, for as the righteous governor of the world, he might have proceeded to uphold the authority of his law by exacting its penalties upon all the disobedient, and thus have given to the unfallen angels a further example of his awful vengeance. Nor did his goodness require that he should rescue any of his rebellious subjects from the misery which they had brought upon themselves, for he had already given a complete display of that in creation. Nor did his love abstractly considered demand that the Savior should be provided. Had that been the case, one must also have been given to the angels which fell. It needs to be pointed out that the manifest glory of God does not depend upon the display of any particular attribute, 
but rather upon the exhibition of them all in full harmony and on proper occasions. He is glorified when he bestows blessings upon the righteous and is equally glorified when he inflicts punishment upon the wicked. God's manifest glory consists in the revelation of his character to his creatures, yet this is purely optional on his part. It is quite voluntary and contributes nothing to his happiness and might have been withheld had he so pleased. Yet as God always acts consistently with himself, if he shows himself at all to his creatures, the discovery will ever correspond to the greatness and excellency of his nature. That the atoning death of Christ had its source in the will of God is plainly declared in Acts 2.23. Him being delivered by determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, though accomplished in the fullness of time, it was resolved upon before time, decreed and enacted in heaven by the eternal three. Therefore do we read in Revelation 13.8 of the Lamb slain from the foundation, parenthesis, or founding of the earth, Christ was the Lamb slain determinately in the counsel and decree of God, Acts 2.23, promissorily in the word of God passed to Adam after the fall, Genesis 3.15, typically in the sacrifices appointed immediately after the promise of redemption, Genesis 3.21 and 4.4, efficaciously in regard of the merit of it, applied by God to believers before the actual sufferings of Christ, Romans 3.25, Hebrews 9.15. He, God, made him, Christ the mediator, to be sin for us, 2 Corinthians 5.21, made or constituted by a divine statute. That is, he was ordained to enter the place of the penal condition of the sinners. Had not God appointed it, the death of Christ had had no meritorious value. Once more in Hebrews 10, the efficacy of Christ's sacrifice unto the elect is traced back and directly ascribed to the eternal and sovereign will of God. In verse 7, we find Christ himself saying, As he was about to become incarnate and enter this world, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. While in verse 10, we are told, By the which will we are sanctified, parenthesis, consecrated to God, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That which saves or sanctifies us is not simply the offering of Christ, for that had availed us not if it had not been divinely appointed, but the will and decree of the eternal three concerning that offering. Number two, the love of God. Love was, or better is, the motive spring of all of God's goodness and grace towards his people. He has for them an everlasting love, Jeremiah 31.3. It was in love that he predestinated us to the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, Ephesians 1.5. Proof of this is that from all eternity he accepted us in, parenthesis, not in Christ, but in the beloved, Ephesians 1.6. Note carefully that this declaration is given before reference is made to the forgiveness of our sins in verse 7. Had it so pleased God, he could have prevented the entrance of sin into this world. He could have restricted the progeny of Adam to the persons of his elect, and he could have taken them to heaven without their having been polluted by sin and redeemed from it, there to enjoy eternal bliss forever. That would have been an astonishing demonstration of his love for us. Yet it pleased God to grant it to his people still farther, 
fuller, deeper, higher manifestations of his love to and for them. God loved his people in ordaining them to eternal life, Acts 13.48, Romans 9.11.13. But he gave yet grander proof by suffering them to fall into a state of spiritual death and then sending his own dear son to redeem them out of it. Three hundred years ago, Dr. Thomas Goodwin, in his incomparable exposition of Ephesians 1, pointed out that had we at first been brought to that communion with Christ, which we shall have in heaven after the day of judgment, without having known either sin or misery, it had been a good and blessed condition indeed. We should have infinitely rejoiced in it and had reason to so have done. But certainly heaven will be sweeter to us by reason of our having once fallen into sin and misery and then having a Redeemer that came and freed us from all and then brought us to heaven. Oh, how sweet will this make heaven to be unto you. I would have you observe this, that it may mightily and wonderfully instance the love of God toward us. The last word of Ephesians 1.6 are that God hath accepted us in his beloved, while the first of verse 7 are in whom we have redemption through his blood. What? Was he God's beloved, and have you redemption in him too? Shall God sacrifice his beloved? God chose us to be holy in heaven with himself, verse 4, to be sons with him there, verse 5, to delight in us there, verse 6. Let that purpose stand. Let them never come to be sinful. Let me have them up in heaven presently with my son. One would have thought God might have said this. No, God would commend his love yet father. He would let them fall into sin to redeem them. He would sacrifice this beloved. He had so much love in his heart that he could commend it to us no way but by sacrificing his beloved. How wondrously has he displayed his love. That love was a motive spring which caused God to provide for his people an atoning sacrifice for their sins is clear from the well-known words of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, so too in 1 John 4.9.10. And this was manifested the love of God toward us because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us, and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Thus the sacred oracles celebrate the work of redemption as the highest and most remarkable instance and exhibition of divine love, and direct us to behold it acted out in the highest degree and to utmost advantage, to be seen and admired by all the elect as an exhaustless and endless source of gratitude and praise. The more unworthy and ill-deserving the objects of that love were in themselves, sinners, enemies, Romans 5, 7-10, the more amazing that love. The greater the deliverance affected by it, the costlier the sacrifice to procure that deliverance, the more is such love crowned. The greater the difficulties to be overcome, sin, death, the grave, the more was that love magnified. The greater the blessings bestowed, justification, sanctification, glorification, the more is that love to be adored. Herein is the emphasis of divine love to us that he sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins, 1 John 4.10. It was love that he would restore men after the fall. There was no more necessity of doing this than of creating the world. As it had 
added nothing to the happiness of God, so the want of it had detracted nothing from it. There was no more absolute necessity of setting up man again after his breaking with God than a new repair of the world after the destructive deluge. But, but that he might wind up his love to the highest pitch, he would not only restore man, but rather let him lie in his deserved misery, would punish his own bowels to secure man from it. It was purely his grace, parenthesis, which is love bestowing favors on the hell-deserving, A.W. Pink, which was the cause that his son tasted death for every son, Hebrews 2.9, by S. Charnock, 16.35. Number three, the righteousness of God. The atonement of Christ directs our thoughts toward God as one whose governmental holiness demanded satisfaction, whose inflexible justice insisted that its claim be fully met, and whose righteous law must be magnified and made honorable before any resultant blessings could flow to his elect. Considered as the guilty and deprived children of Adam, God can by no means clear the guilty, Exodus 34.7. Unlike so much that passes for it in the human realm, the love of God is not lawless. It is not exercised in defiance of righteousness. God is light, 1 John 1.5, as well as love, and because he is such, sin cannot be ignored, its heinousness minimized, nor its guilt canceled. True it is that where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Yet grace did not abound at the expense of righteousness, rather does grace reign through righteousness, Romans 5.21. But could not God remit the sins of his people without an atoning satisfaction? This question is explicitly and authoritatively answered for us in Hebrews 9.22. Without shedding of blood, there is no remission. Commenting on this and his remarkable book, The Atonement, 1871, the late Hugh Martin said, No doubt at first sight this seems merely to allege a fact without assigning a reason. It seems to intimate nothing more than the historical truth that in point of fact God never has remitted the sins of men without shedding of blood. But if emphasis is placed on the word remission, and if a true idea is entertained of the transaction, which that word represents, the proposition without shedding of blood is no remission will be found not merely to allege the fact, but also assign a reason for that fact to embody not only the historical verity, but the underlying principle which justifies it and which only needs to be carefully investigated and apprehended to furnish a satisfactory answer to the question. Why should not God remit the sins of men without an atonement? For when the inspired writer affirms that without shedding of blood is no remission, it is as if he had said, You may imagine a forgiveness without shedding of blood if you will. You may conjecture or conjure up some other scheme or principle of pardon. You may conceive of God as dealing with the sinner and delivering him from the punishment due to his iniquities without these iniquities being expiated, without the penalty incurred by them being exacted, without the law of which they are transgressors being relieved from the stain of dishonor which they had cast upon it without any costly sacrifice, any solemn propitiation, any priceless ransom. But whatever this transaction might be, it would not be remission, granting that it were quite possible for God to let the sinner off, to wipe out by mere arbitrary decree and without any satisfaction to divine justice the debt which the sinner had contracted, to cease from his anger toward his enemies and return to a state of friendship, 
to say your sins be forgiven you, you have nothing now to fear, all this without shedding of blood, without any sacrifice or atonement or expiation, still all this, whatever it might amount to, does not amount to remission. Call it what you please, be it what it may, it is not remission. It may be held up as an equivalent for it, it may be in a room and in lieu of it, it may be all that multitudes care to inquire after or have ever felt the need of or troubled themselves to seek. But however possible it might be on God's part, however satisfactory it might be on their part, it is not remission. It may look like it. It may seem to carry with it all that the unenlightened have any thought of when thinking of remission, but real remission it is not. Without shedding of blood it is not remission. What the enlightened conscience of an anxious inquirer longs for is remission, remission of sins. And what is that? It is removal of guilt, removal of liability to the wrath of God, removal of criminal or ill desert. It is a sentence of not guilty. It is a recognition of blamelessness before the Holy One of Israel. A position and relation toward God, therefore, in which his wrath would be undue, unrighteous, impossible. That would be remission. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, 
they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.